Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we are continuing the fruit of the Spirit. And last week we looked at love. So let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. And each week we're going to be looking at a new aspect of the fruit. I want to do a little bit of review from last week. Not a lot, because I want to talk tonight about joy. Uh, Joy is our main topic. So Galatians 5, let's pick up in verse 22. Uh, Galatians 5, 22. And I'm just warning you guys tonight, um, we're going to be in a book of the Bible in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles, so um, get prepared to, like, I've never been to 2 Chronicles in a long time. So we're going to turn to there a little bit later on, okay? So, and we're going to be in John. Um, So the rest of the scriptures are probably going to be up on the screen or in your sheet. All right, so Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, last week we said that Paul starts out by talking about the works, plural, of the flesh, and then he has the fruit singular of the Spirit. And so the fruit of the Spirit, it's, it's one fruit, but all these different aspects. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, they're all part of the one fruit. And so these are things that the Holy Spirit produces deep within our hearts that we can't do in our own power, our own flesh. So it's something that the Lord, the Holy Spirit does in us. And so last week we talked about love. We talked about how it was a selfless, sacrificial type of giving of ourselves. And so today we're going to talk about joy. So I want to start by trying to define what joy is not. So we're going to look at what joy is not, and then we're going to try to define biblically what joy is. Because... There's a lot of confusion out there when we talk about the word joy. So first of all, joy is not shallow optimism, okay? I can fake optimism. I can be on the edge of the Titanic and it's sinking and and say, we're going to be all right, and kind of fake it. I can fake, I I can give like a big stiff upper lip and, and be optimistic about the future, but really in my heart be anxious, be uneasy be fearful. So I can kind of fake an optimism. That's not what joy is, okay? Joy is also not temporary happiness, okay? Happiness. Do you guys know where the word happy comes from, happiness? It comes from the old English word happenstance, which means circumstance. So you take happenstance and circumstance together. Happy means I'm feeling good when things are going good. But when things are going bad, I feel really bad. So it's this roller coaster of emotions. Also, joy is not the absence of pain or sorrow. 
we'll talk about this as we go through. You can be joyful in the midst of pain and sorrow. Um, especially in the Psalms. The Psalms are very realistic about this whole issue of depression. So let me just say this. I believe Christians can be depressed. Clinically depressed. I believe Christians can be in serious bouts of discouragement. I even believe Christians can struggle with suicide thoughts. Um, And the reason I believe that is because I've been a pastor for a long time. And I've counseled people. But I can also read the Psalms. So Psalm 31, 9 through 10. You guys tell me how the psalmist is feeling here. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. That's a pretty strong feeling of discouragement. And in Psalm 42, 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So I know this doesn't apply to you at Emmanuel, because you're well taught over all these years. But there are some Christians that give in to the prosperity gospel. The word faith, name it and claim it, that says, if you're a Christian, you should always be happy You should never have sickness. You should never have trials. You should never have struggles. Basically, when you become a Christian, you you put on this um, whole idea where life is perfect. Okay. Now, there's a really good Greek word for that that my dad taught me a long time ago when I was studying Greek from my dad. You know know what he called it? Baloney. Okay, it's called baloney. You and I will go through periods of sorrow and discouragement. So, Joy is not a shallow optimism. We can fake that. It's not temporary happiness. That just depends upon our circumstances. And we can be joyful in the midst of pain and sorrow. So, what joy is. This is Sean Cole's definition. So it's, not, it's, it's my best attempt to define joy based upon a bunch of passages of Scripture. So this definition I'm giving you is is my feeble, weak attempt to somehow put it into words. And there's basically three parts to this definition. But let me give you the definition, then we'll break it down. Okay, so joy is a deep-seated sense of contentment and satisfaction in Christ alone that does not depend upon circumstances, but rests in the unchanging and sovereign grace of God. So let's break this down. Let's look at this definition. Number one, joy is deep-seated. It's not surface. It's the fruit of joy that the Holy Spirit produces in you. It's something that goes deep into your heart. Joy is not something that's fleeting or surfacey. It's something that God puts deep in you. It's a deep-seated sense of contentment, of satisfaction, of hope. Nehemiah 8.10, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You should probably have that verse memorized. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Where do you get your source of strength? From the joy of the Lord. It comes from the Lord. It gives you strength deep in your soul. 
Okay? The second part of the definition. Joy is not dependent upon circumstances. It's not dependent upon circumstances. You could be going through a terrible time in your life and still have joy. may not be happy, but you can have joy. So number one, it's deep-seated. It's deeply, it's this deep sense of contentment, deep sense of, of, of satisfaction in Christ. It's not dependent on circumstances. And then number three, joy comes in resting in the unchanging and sovereign grace of God for us in Christ. Let me just say it this way. If you don't have a healthy dose of God's sovereignty, you're not going to have much joy. Those two things go hand in hand. If you don't trust in the absolute bedrock sovereignty of God over all things, it's going to be really hard to find joy. Um, Job, at the end of Job's life, after Job had been through all that stuff, Job 42.2, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What does it mean thwarted? What does it mean no purpose of God's can be thwarted? What does it mean to thwart something? To stop it. No purpose of God can be stopped. He's absolutely sovereign. Okay? So that's my feeble little definition there. So it's deep-seated sense of contentment and satisfaction in Christ alone that doesn't depend upon circumstances, and it trusts in the absolute sovereign grace of God. So what does the Bible say about joy? So these are just some basic teachings that we're going to talk about tonight about joy. So number one... We're commanded to be joyful. It's a command. Philippians 4.4, this is a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice twice. It's a command. We are to rejoice in the Lord, to be joyful in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice how often? Always. Now, does that mean that you're like a happy, clappy cheerleader on the sidelines saying, yeah, I know you can do it, yeah. I mean, is it like this real, like I used to say, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, like this Pee Wee Herman weird, like happy, clappy, like I'm always, you know what I'm talking about. I hope you know what I'm talking about because I don't want to go any further in what I'm doing here. So is that what we're talking about here? No, be joyful always. Okay, so here's the hard thing about it. Joy is something that's deep inside of you, that God puts there. But, here's the second thing I want to tell you tonight, if my clicker works. Joy is meant to be expressed outwardly. Okay, you and I are commanded to be joyful, but somehow it has to be expressed outwardly. So, how do you express joy? Well, let's look at some psalms that tell us. Psalm 32, 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So how does it come out? Shout for joy. When was the last time you shouted for joy? Psalm 33, 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. So shout Okay, just stop for a moment. I, I challenge you to go through these psalms and find one psalm that says, think for joy. Have deep thoughts about joy. 
I mean, not that we, I mean, we, we have joy deep in our hearts, but all of these verses in the Psalms tell us that it has to come out. And it usually comes out in shouting, singing, clapping, or some type of outward expression. Uh, 40, Psalm 47.1, what does it say? Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Okay, so let's talk about Sunday morning worship. I'm praising the Lord and I'm happy when I do. I mean, okay, so sometimes on Sunday mornings, you know, we can be like real like, okay, the praise team's playing. What does this, what does this say? Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Okay, if you don't like loud singing, you're not going to like heaven because heaven's going to be loud. Now, I'm not saying be raucous and be obnoxious, but when we come together on the Lord's Day morning to sing in here, we should be singing with joy. We should be maybe shouting with joy. And you may be sounding, well, I can't sing very well. And the person next to me is going to be really upset if they hear me sing. All it says is shout for joy, make a joyful noise. It doesn't say sing on tune, <laughs> sing on key. My dad can't sing, okay? He can't sing. It's terrible to hear him sing. But he loves to worship. And so when I'm worshiping my dad, you know, he's got his hands raised and he's singing. And I'm like, oh, dad, you can't sing. <laughs> but you're sure, you sure are praising and you're, you're joyful. So there's some of you out there that can't sing, but you can make a joyful noise to the Lord. Okay? And you have to be within your personality. I'm not saying be something that you're not. But, you know, show a little outward expression here. Psalm 68.3. But the, right, but the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. Kind of like redundant. Be, be joyful with joy. Be jubilant with joy. Psalm 95, 1, oh, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And in Psalm 101, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. So joy is something that's deep. It's solid. It's lasting. God puts it in you. But it's got to come out somehow. Singing, shouting, clapping, maybe expressing. And there's appropriate ways to do that. Usually in corporate worship when we're singing together. And so all throughout the Psalms, we're called to express this joy outwardly. And why wouldn't you want to do that? If Christ is everything to you, why wouldn't you, in the, free, in the freedom of your brothers and sisters in Christ, why wouldn't you want to let it all out for Jesus? Okay? All right. This next one is an interesting one. Because you could probably, you probably, some of you, all of us probably have experienced this. We can lose our joy when we sin. Notice I said that carefully. You don't lose your salvation when you sin but you can lose your joy. Okay, do you guys remember the story of David and Bathsheba? What did David do? All the kings went off to war. His men left. He's on the top of the roof. He looks down. He sees Bathsheba bathing down below, and he goes and takes her, steals her from Uriah, has sex with her, commits adultery. She gets pregnant. He tries to cover it up. He eventually has Uriah killed, so he commits murder, adultery, stealing, lying. Okay. 
How do you think David is feeling in his relationship to the Lord with joy? You think he's feeling joyful or do you think he's feeling what? Guilty. It's eating away at him. So turn real quick to Psalm 51. We're going to be kind of looking all over the place tonight. But turn to Psalm 51 because Psalm 51 was written when David was confronted or after David was confronted by Nathan the prophet with that. So there's a, there's a superscript that's in your Bible that sometimes in the Psalms it will give a description, like a historical description or what the context of the Psalm is. So somebody tell me, what, is, what does it say right before, right before verse 1 on Psalm 51? Maybe it's in brackets or in, in, in um, italics. What does it say in your Bible? No, before, no before, before verse 1, what does it say? Okay, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went into him after he'd gone to Bathsheba. Does yours have that in your Bibles? Does it tell you the historical? So Psalm 51 was written when Nathan the prophet went into him. And basically tells that parable to David about stealing the little sheep. And David gets real upset and says, that guy needs to be put to death. And Nathan said, you're the man. And then David is overcome with sorrow. But let's read this. Look, look, look at what he says. Hear the angst in his heart after he's committed a grievous sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. If something has to be restored, what does that mean? It was lost or it was gone. So David here is wasting away in guilt, in contrition. He's repenting and he says, God, I'm so overridden with sin, it's taken my joy. Now, could David bring the joy back himself? That's why he prays to the Lord. Lord, you're going to have to restore that joy. So let me just ask you a question. If it's the joy of the Lord as your strength, if joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit, if joy is deep-seated, can you in and of yourself produce joy? The Holy Spirit has to do that. Now you can confess and you can ask, but the prayer here is, Lord, you're going to have to restore to me the joy. Because I've lost, I haven't lost my salvation, but I've lost the joy of that relationship with you. So when we fall into patterns of sin, that can kill joy really easily. Okay? Sometimes 
It's good to look at the opposite of what something is in the Bible. It helps us understand what it is by looking at its opposite. I think the opposite of joy is bitterness. Bitterness. What's bitterness? You're walking around with an unforgiving, complaining, bitter, hardened heart that's mad at the world, and you're just you're not you're not ever content with anything. Now remember what happened to Naomi, Ruth and Naomi. Okay, her husband died, and her two sons died, and she's in a far-off country in Moab. She's away from home in Bethlehem, and everything's been taken away from her. And so she says, I'm going to go back home to Bethlehem. And Orpah, the other daughter, says, I'm not going to go back with you. So she walks away. And by the way, Orpah means back of the neck. All you see is the back of her neck walking back to Moab. Ruth, on the other hand, says, I'm going to go to your homeland. Now, remember they come back to Bethlehem, and everybody's excited. And they're like, Naomi's back. And in Ruth 1.20, what does Naomi say? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Mara in Hebrew is the word bitter. Naomi says, don't, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter, because everything's been taken away from me. My husband's been taken away from me. My sons have been taken away from me. I am poor. I am destitute. My name's not Naomi. My name's bitter. That's my identity. Ever known anybody like that? Like their identity is bitter. Don't call me my real name. My name's Bitterness because they're so eaten up with bitterness. If you're eaten up with bitterness, you don't have joy. Now, we find out as you read the rest of Ruth, you know what happens. Ruth gets married to Boaz, and she has a baby boy, and eventually, you know, David's dynasty comes from Ruth and Boaz. Proverbs 14.10, the heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. The heart knows its own bitterness. Psalm 17, 22. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. It's interesting when you look at these Old Testament passages, they didn't have the medical, they didn't have the medical diagnostics that we have today, but they often talked about depression, bitterness, discouragement as your, as your bones being crushed like taking a physical toll on you. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See that no root of bitterness. Now, what happens if there becomes a root of bitterness? What, what happens if there's a root? What eventually happens if there's a root? It grows. So what do you want to do if there's a root of bitterness? You want to get your spiritual roundup, or you want, you want to kill the root before it grows. Because if a root grows, it's going to cause fruit. And so the writer of Hebrews here says, don't let any root of bitterness spring up. That'll kill your joy. Because all you're going to have is just bitterness 
And then James tells us in James 3, 14 through 15, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So we're commanded to be joyful. We need to let that joy come out in expressiveness. We can lose our joy when we sin. The opposite of joy is bitterness. Now, I don't have a Bible verse for this. This is just some Sean Cole wisdom, okay? So surround yourself by people who openly talk about Jesus. I guarantee you, if you're around people that gossip and complain and are bitter, or if you spend all your time on social media getting riled up, are you going to have joy? But if you spend your time around people who openly talk about Jesus and talk about the gospel, they're going to encourage you. Here's what happens in our world today. A lot of times people don't talk to other people. They talk to people by spouting off something on Facebook just to get things off their mind. (laughs) And they don't actually talk to another person. I can't tell you how many times I'll read a... I mean, it's amazing how free people are to put stuff on Facebook. That like 30 years ago growing up, you would never in public conversation divulge that to somebody else. But I have the safety of my keyboard. I have the right to say it. I'm venting and I'm just going to throw it out there. And I've always said this. Okay, social media. Most of you probably don't use Twitter, probably mostly use Facebook or Instagram. If you use Twitter, I'd be interested because that's really a bad place to go if you want positivity. Um, Before you post, repost, share, or like, ask yourself this question. Is what I'm about to do, does it edify? Does it build up? Is it positive? Or is it just going to rile people up and be negative? And in the grand scheme of things, does it really matter? especially during this political season where everybody's giving opinions about everything. Spend a whole week doing nothing on Facebook but just doing stuff that's positive. So surround yourself with people, not necessarily social media, but real people who talk about Jesus. All right. We can, this is another thing about joy, we can experience joy through trials. This is where the Christian life is counterintuitive to everything else. Because when you're going through a trial, when you're going through a hard time, the last thing that you think about is joy. We can focus on the pain. We can focus on the hurt. We can focus on the loss. We can focus on all these different things. But let's just look at some of these scriptures that talk about having joy in the midst of trials. So Habakkuk or Habakkuk, depending on what country you're from. I call it Habakkuk. Anybody, anybody call it Habakkuk? Good. We'll call it Habakkuk tonight, okay? Habakkuk. At the end of Habakkuk, he makes this statement, because here's the story of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is looking around at all the violence in Israel, and he's really upset by all the violence and the chaos, kind of like what's going on today. And he prays out to God and says, God, are you going to do something about this chaos and this violence? Are you going to do something to come help us as a nation? And God says, yeah, I'm going I'm to send an invading army of the Babylonians to come in and take you over. 
that's not the answer I wanted, God. (laughs) I wanted you to take away the problems. I'm judging you, Israel, for your idolatry by sending another nation in to take take you over. And so this whole Habakkuk is, is him complaining with God about God's ways. And then at the end, Habakkuk comes to this conclusion. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now, that culture was agriculture, you know, it, basically that ancient culture. So like the fig tree, figs were a great source of, of income. The fruit on the vine, grapefruits. I mean, gra- I mean, not grapefruit, grape. Grapes growing. The produce, olive oils, olive presses, fields, flocks, st- livestock. If all that stuff's taken, basically Habakkuk's saying, if everything that I trust in is taken away, my financial security, my economic security, everything's taken away. What would we expect him to say in verse 18? I'm going to get angry and go pout. I'm going to get bitter and go get mad at God. What does he say? Verse 18, yet I will, yet. What does yet mean? (laughs) Even though all these bad things happen, I'm making a choice, yet I will do what? Rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I'm going to experience joy in the midst of extreme loss, is what Habakkuk says. Okay, Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. That's easy. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Is it easy to be joyful in the day of prosperity? Yeah, when things are going good, I'm joyful. What about the day of adversity? What does the writer say? God's ordained both. When you go through prosperity, when you go through adversity, God's in charge of both of that. So be joyful in both because God is the one that's sovereignly orchestrating these things in your life that you're going through. Okay, stop for just a moment. Does God ordain you to go through trials? Let me say it a different way, a less scary way. Does God permit you to go through trials? Does God allow you to go through trials? Regardless of what word you use, allow, permit, or ordain, what's the the point? Behind it all is God. He's either allowing it or he planned it, or he's not stopping it. Now the question is, can he? Is he powerful enough to stop it? Does he always stop it? Okay, For God not to stop you going through trials, God must have a purpose. Does God always have a purpose in everything he does? Does God tell us what the purpose is? <laughs> no, is God under obligation to tell us what the purpose is? Okay, So, everything you and I go through is ordained by God. Now that can bring great comfort or that can bring great, like, ooh, that's scary. It should bring us great comfort because if you're a child of God, he's going to, I always say this, God may not take you out of the trial, but God will be with you right in the midst of the trial. 
Because going through the trial may be what God has for you to grow your faith, to have that joy. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11 through 12, Blessed are you, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when people say evil things against you, when people come against you and they slander you and they, they persecute you and they say all manner of, weird, uh, of evil things against you, what are you supposed to do? Retaliate? What does he say? Rejoice and be glad. Now, some things we read in the Bible and we're like, we take a double take. What? Some pastor said this one time, and I agree with him. If something seems counterintuitive in the Bible, it's probably true. Because what do we usually, what, what do we usually, what, what's, the, what's, what's the normal response to being persecuted or reviled? What's the natural response? Fight back, anger, retaliate. So these things that we're hearing about suffering, this is not stuff that's counter, this is counterintuitive, it's countercultural, it's not really, it doesn't really flow with what we think the way the world should be. And again, that's why joy is supernatural. That's why God has to produce it. That's why it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's not something you can muster up. It's something that God has to give you. Okay, so Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in what? What do we rejoice in? Sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So we rejoice in suffering. Okay, James says it a little differently here in uh, James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy. All joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He doesn't, he doesn't give us specificity of the trial. He just says different types of trials that you go through. Count it all joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So rejoice in suffering, Paul says in Romans 5. Count it all joy when you go through trials, James. Okay, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, 6-9. through 9. In this you rejoice... Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Okay, so you rejoice as you're grieving in various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter there in verse 8 says, even though we can't see Jesus, and even though we go through trials, the mere fact that we know that we're saved and one day we're going to go to heaven, it's a, what's, what's a joy inexpressible? It's a joy you can't put into words, you can't explain. That's why I talk about joy being sometimes hard to define. It's that deep-seated, Holy Spirit produced in the depth of your soul, contentment, satisfaction in Christ, regardless of circumstances, 
You could be going through serious trials where you trust and rest in the absolute sovereignty of God, no matter what. Because you know God's sovereign, God's good, God's going to get you through the trial. And in the midst of that, he can give you joy. Now, we're going to look at an Old Testament example of joy. So turn with me to 2 Chronicles. We're going to talk about Jehoshaphat. When was the last time you had a teaching on 2 Chronicles chapter 20? Not in a long time, I'm hearing you say. That was my Bible reading this morning. No, I don't know. It's a great story. So Jehoshaphat, or Jehoshaphat, depending on if you're from some other places of the country, it's Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was one of the kings of, of, of Judah, the southern, the southern kingdom. And he was a good king. Most of the kings of Israel and Judah were pretty bad. They did idolatrous things. He's one of the good ones. And in chapter 20, he's faced with the impending armies coming against the nation. So I want to read all of chapter 20 because it's an exciting story to see what happens. But let's see what Jehoshaphat does, how he leads the people, and how the people respond, and how God comes through. Okay, because this is a good illustration of joy, okay, from the Old Testament. So everybody there, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Okay, all right, here we go. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with some of the Minuanites, okay, those are all the ites, the surrounding pagan Canaanite nations that are surrounding Israel, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazanon Tamar, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Now let's just stop right there. Is this a real impending threat? I mean, nations are coming to attack Israel. And Jehoshaphat the king, what's the first thing he does? Does he come up with a battle plan? Does he get his advisors together and say, you know, let's, let's, have, a, let's have a think tank here. Let's get a military strategy. He's afraid. What's the first thing he does? He says, okay, everybody in the land, we're going to f- pray and fast and seek the Lord. And so all of Judah, the southern kingdom, from all their cities, they came together to seek the face of the Lord. Okay, let's keep going. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem and the house of the Lord before the new court. So he's in the temple. He's in Jerusalem in the temple as the king. He's in the house of the Lord, and he's, he's praying now. So verse 6 is his prayer. So, so imagine all the people are gathered there together. The nation's gathered. They're seeking the face of the Lord. These, the, the battle's about to be raged against them. They're afraid. They're looking at their king. The king says, all we can do is seek the face of the Lord. What does the king pray? Verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? 
And they have lived in it and have built it for you a sanctuary for your name, saying if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. And we will cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and say, you will hear and save. What does Jehoshaphat say? So, Lord, we're your people. We know you're a sovereign God. We know you're a powerful God. We know you made a covenant with Abraham. And in times of distress, we're going to come to the temple. We're going to come to your house, and we're going to cry out because we know that you can hear us, God. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 10. Now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you've given us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? And I love this. For we are powerless against this great horde that's coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You ever felt like that before? God, I don't know what to do. God, I'm clueless. God, I'm going through a major period of distress. I have no clue what to do. All I can do is keep my eyes on you. I'm praying. I'm fasting. I'm crying out to you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now, some people would look at the king and say, well, that's, a, that's an act of weakness. Why are we following this king? He, he doesn't know what to do. Isn't that why he's king? Isn't that why he's a leader? He should at least have a plan. I find it refreshing that the king doesn't know what to do. Because he has to totally trust in the Lord, not in his own might. And the people are all looking at the king like, if you don't know what to do, we don't know what to do, but we're all going to keep our eyes on Jesus. Okay, let's, let's keep going. Verse 13. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. So everyone's gathered there with their, their kids and everybody. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mathaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. Okay, so a Levite priest whom the Holy Spirit came upon is about to stand up and give a message. He's about to, to preach a prophetic word to the people that they need to hear in this moment because the Holy Spirit has anointed him in that moment to give them a message. So what does he say? Verse 15, he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. So he's a prophet, he's a Levite, but he's speaking as a prophet. He's about to prophesy what the Lord has said. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Okay. They're afraid. The armies are coming in. The king says, I don't know what to do. And the prophet stands up and says, here's what you got to do. Nothing. <laughs> Go out there for battle and wait for God to fight for you. Well, that's a great strategy. 
Now they're probably even more afraid. But what does he say? The Lord will be with you. Don't be afraid. You don't need to fight this battle. The Lord, the Lord, if you just stand firm, watch the Lord fight on your behalf. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 18. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Notice how they didn't freak out. They didn't complain. They didn't say, Jehoshaphat, who's this prophet that you got in here telling us this stuff? How did they respond to that message? We're encouraged. We've heard the word of the Lord. We don't need to be afraid. We're going to bow down. We're going to worship. Verse 19, And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Okay, these are the worship leaders of Israel. What did they stand up and do? They started leading them in what? Shouts of praise! Shouts, make a joy. They're, they're shouting with joy to the Lord. They're leading them in worship. Okay, so the next day is the battle. So verse 20, They rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. So what, what's he telling Judah? We just got to believe in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Trust the message. You've heard the message that God is going to fight for us. We've fight for us. We've just got to believe the word of the Lord. Okay, verse 21. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, okay, so they were going to sing. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. That's, that's a repeated refrain, refrain in a lot of the Psalms. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. So what was the battle plan? You don't have to fight. Stand firm. Jehoshaphat says, I'm going to appoint some people to sing, and we're going to sing praises to the Lord. And as they're singing and praising out there in the battlefield, what happens? They don't even have to fight. What is the, it says the Lord did what? The Lord routed them. The Lord scattered them. The Lord caused the enemies to flee in fear because they were singing. Do you see anybody picking up a spear or a sword? riding a horse or a chariot. They are told to stand. They're told to believe. They're told to sing. They're told to watch. They're told to have faith. And the Lord came through, right? Did the Lord answer their prayer? Very powerful way. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 24. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped dead bodies just from singing i guess that really was bad singing it's so bad that, i mean no i'm just joking the lord did it verse 25 when jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil they found among them in great numbers goods clothing and precious things which they took for themselves until they could carry no more there were three days in taking the spoil it was so much on the fourth day the assembly in the they assembled in the valley of barakah for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Barakah to this day. 
Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had sought, fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. So how did they respond to the Lord's provision? They returned. What does verse 27 say? Returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. So this is a very interesting, wonderful Old Testament account of a people that were afraid, a people that were under a severe trial, a king that was clueless and didn't know what to do. All he needed, all he needed to do was, we need to, we need to just gather together and pray and ask the Lord to come through. And then God sends a prophet and says, here's what you're going to do. You're just going to stand firm and you're just going to watch the Lord work. And then the king says, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to sing. And they begin singing and the Lord destroys the enemies and they respond with joy. So a lesson for us in trusting in the Lord when we're clueless, when we're afraid, when we don't know what to do. Sometimes all you can pray is, Lord, I don't know what to do. And all you need to hear is, I got this. Just believe. Now, does that mean that it's going to be, turn out the way you want it to turn out always? Not necessarily, but it does mean God will be there with it, and God will give you the joy in that. So Jehoshaphat. All right, so let's ask the question tonight, how do we grow in joy? So how, how do you... Okay, so here's the, here's the paradox. Okay, here's the paradox. You can't produce joy. God does it in you. But are there some things that you and I can do to put us in a posture to experience more joy? And the answer is yes. So turn your Bibles to John 15. John 15. This is the night before Jesus or the night of Jesus' betrayal. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's probably around a bunch of vineyards. And he's teaching his disciples about biblical truth before he goes to the cross. So let's read John 15, 1 through 11. John 15, 1 through 11. Is everybody there? Okay, this is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But this is my Father 
by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I want us to read this backwards, okay? I want us to look at the conclusion and then work backwards. What's the conclusion in verse 11? After Jesus gives this teaching, how does he bring... His, verse 11 says, These things I have spoken to you, for what purpose? That my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So let's talk about this issue of joy. First of all, it's Christ's joy. What does he say? I write I, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. Whose joy is it? Your joy or Jesus' joy? So it's a joy that he gives you. Again, it's not happiness. It's not fake optimism that's based upon circumstances, something you can muster up. It's something Jesus has to give you. Notice what he says. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy, my joy may be in you. That's the first thing. It's Christ's joy that's in you. And then what's the second thing he says? And that your joy may be what? Full. And that word full means overflowing. So it's Christ's joy that he puts deep inside of us, and it's a joy that's overflowing. So the question is, okay, how does that happen? How do you receive Christ's joy, and how does it overflow? How do you overflow with this joy? Because Jesus says, I've, I've told you these things so that this joy may happen. So we've got to go back and look at these things he's told to see how the joy comes. Okay? Does that make sense? We've seen the end. The joy comes from the Lord. Okay, how does that happen? So this whole thing is about abiding. Abiding. So first of all, if you want to ask the question, how do you experience joy, the joy of the Lord as your strength, overflowing joy? First of all, we abide in prayer. We abide in prayer. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, we need to be very careful here. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Is this like a carte blanche blank check to pray for whatever you want? Lord, I want a Lamborghini and Jesus is obligated to give it to you. No, context here tells us how we're to pray. Look at what he says there. He says there in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. In the whole context of Jesus' teaching here, they are to be praying, but praying according to God's will, praying according to God's glory. And the promise is, is that um, Jesus will answer their prayer. Uh, go back to, um, well, never mind. Let me, let me just kind of give you this statement here. Abiding in prayer means asking for things that bring glory to God and are in line with Scripture and are in Christ's name. So the more you abide in prayer... Now, what does it mean to abide? To live, to spend time, 
to take the time. If you take the time and the energy and the space to pray in accordance with God's will, you will be bearing fruit. What's the fruit that you bear when you abide in prayer? What's the fruit? Well, you have a promise from Jesus that he will answer our prayers. What does he say there? Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It will be done for you. Okay. We need to be very careful that we don't you know, give in to the whole prosperity gospel, name it, claim it. We have a promise that if we pray in Christ's name for God's glory, according to God's will, and it's in line with Scripture, Jesus will answer that prayer. And here's the point. That answer may not exactly be what we hoped for or in the exact timing we were looking for, but if we pray according to God's will, we have the promise of answered prayer. So if you want to grow in joy, spend time in prayer. The more you spend time in prayer, the more the joy of the Lord will be your strength, the more His joy will be in you. So the first practical way that we can continue to abide or rely or rest upon Christ as a source of life and, and the true vine and spiritual nourishment and joy is to abide in prayer, to spend time in prayer. Now, I love Psalm 1611. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there's what? Fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay, what did Jesus say there down in verse 11? These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. What does Jesus promise? His joy full joy. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 1611? In your presence, there's fullness of joy. How do you spend time in the presence of the Lord? By prayer. So when you abide in prayer, when you spend time with Jesus in his presence, there's fullness of joy. He will fill you with his joy. Okay, so that's the first thing. The more time you spend in prayer, the probability is the more joy you're going to experience in his presence. Okay. okay, second, we abide in his love. Okay, Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Okay, now this is a little confusing. Abide in my love. It sounds kind of strange. Is this somehow teaching that we can like fall out of God's love or lose our salvation or get to the point where we, we've sinned so badly that he doesn't love us anymore. What does it mean to stay in his love? Does it mean that you have to work hard to keep your salvation? You have to keep doing these things so God loves you. It's not what Jesus means there. We know from the rest of the Bible and from even Jesus' own words that as a true Christian you can never fall out of God's love you are eternally secure and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. So what does it mean to abide in that love? 
It just really means to stay in that love. It do, here, here's what it means. Let me give you a verse. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay. To abide in God's love, it's not saying you can fall out of God's love if you're not, if you're not good enough or somehow if you, if you sin, you're going to lose it. What abiding in his love means is that you spend time thinking about, contemplating, focusing on God's love for you in the cross. Kind of what we talked about last week. When we talked about love last week, we said you really can't love other people unless you first really understand God's love for you. So you abide in Christ's love when you constantly focus your gaze upon him and think about his love for you in the cross. You stand amazed at the cross. You never get beyond the gospel. John Owen, one of the greatest privileges and advancements of believers both in this world and to eternity consists in their beholding the glory of Christ, seeing the glory of Christ. So how do you grow in joy? You think about the love of God in Christ. You think about the cross. Do you meditate upon the cross? Do you enjoy God's love for you? Now, this is not some self-centered pat on the back where you're so happy that God loves you because you're worth it. That's not what we're talking about here. What it is, is it's seeing the depths of your sin and shame and realizing that when Jesus saved you from, realizing what Jesus saved you from, and now he's adopted you into God's family, you're forgiven, you're cleansed, and the joy floods your soul when you think about Christ's love for you. You know, one of my favorite passages of Scripture is Romans 5, 6-8. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so here's the point Jesus is saying. If you want to experience the fullness of joy, Abide in prayer. In your presence, in prayer, there's fullness of joy. Think about his love. Abide in his love. Think about the cross. Let the joys of the cross flood your soul. Think about God's love for you, that, that you did not deserve that love, but that God gave it to you in Christ as you were not deserving of that. And then the third, okay, abide in prayer, abide in love. The third thing Jesus says is abide in his word through obedience. Abide in his word, which means read his word, meditate on his word, and then obey what it says. So look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If you keep my commandments. Abiding in Jesus' word. John 8, 31 through 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is not rocket science. How do you want to get more joy? How's your prayer life? 
How's your thought life on the cross? And how is your Bible intake? Are you abiding in the word? It's interesting when you go to Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, it's all about the word of God. And, and the psalmist makes some interesting statements. So Psalm 119, 14 through 16. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Delight's just another word for joy. I find joy in spending time in your word. I delight in your word. Psalm 139, or Psalm, Psalm 119, 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. God, lead me according to your word. I, I delight in it. I want to be led. Psalm 119, 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. And in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let his word dwell in you richly. Abide in his word. Spend time in his word. Delight in his word. 1 John 5.2-3, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So Jesus in John 15 gives us three things. He says, if you abide in prayer, you abide in love, and you abide in the word, what happens? What ultimately results? What's the fruit that God produces? When you, you have the... You have, God produces the fruit, but you have to do the responsibility. You've got to abide in prayer. You've got to abide in love. You've got to abide in the word. What, what, what's the result of all that? Okay, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. What are these things he's just spoken to us? Abide in prayer. Abide in love. Abide in his word. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Psalm 4, 7 through 8. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Think about that. What happens in the old days when they had grain and wine abound? When you had grain and wine abound, what did that mean? Things were good. Your crops were good. Your cattle was good. You're, you were wealthy, you had all your needs met, you had a good harvest. Things were really great. What does the psalmist say? You put more joy in my heart than that. You've put more joy in my heart. So God puts that joy in our heart. Augustine, some people call him St. Augustine, the early church father, in his book, The Confessions, said this, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. We're made for the joy of the Lord. We're made for God. We're made for worship. And our hearts are always going to be restless until we find joy in the Lord. Because here's what's happened. You and I were made for worship, were we not? We're going to worship something. 
The question is not, are you going to worship? The question is, what or who are you going to worship? And until you settle on the fact that your joy is going to come through Jesus, your heart's always going to be restless. You're always going to be searching. You're always going to be anxious. You're always going to be trying to find the next thing until you rest in Christ and find that joy in Him. So Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you, there's that word fill again, with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. May God fill that with you. So joy is the fruit we bear, but in reality it comes from abiding in Christ. He gives us the joy. He supplies the joy. He puts the joy in us, but it comes from, it's, a, it's the fruit or the outflow of our time spent with him. So here's the main idea. Okay, here's the main idea. The more you abide in prayer and abide in Christ's love and abide in obedience through his word, the more you'll experience the joy of the Lord as your strength. Just that simple. If you want the fullness of joy, then spend time in his word, spend time in prayer, spend time with Jesus. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. And here's the exact opposite, okay? If that's true, what's the exact opposite? When you don't abide in prayer, you're prayerless, you're self-sufficient. When you're not focusing on the cross, when you're, not, when you're ambivalent to the gospel, when you're not walking obedience to Jesus or keeping his commandments, you don't experience joy. I mean, it's that simple. If you're not praying and you're not abiding in his love, and you're not abiding in his word, don't expect to experience much joy. Because basically you're living life in your own power, in your own strength. And it becomes anxious and stressful and insecure and bitter as opposed to the joy of the Lord. Jesus also says something in John 16, 22. He's still teaching on the same night um, here in, in John so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. What does Jesus tell the disciples? No one's going to take away your joy. And when Jesus uses that word take away, your joy, it really means to conquer or kill your joy. In other words, what Jesus is saying, it's an indestructible joy that Jesus gives you based upon his death, burial, and resurrection, and a gift of the Holy Spirit living inside you. So Jesus gives you the joy. It's the fullness of joy, and it's an indestructible joy that no one can take from you. Now, this, same, this statement may sound confusing, okay? This may sound counterintuitive. Don't go looking for joy in your life. What? <laughs> Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Don't look for joy. Uh, what do you mean, Pastor Sean? Joy is the fruit or the byproduct of Christ. So here's what I would say. Instead of seeking for joy, seek Christ. Abide in Christ. Worship Christ. Glory in Christ. And guess what will happen? The joy will come. He will fill you with joy. His joy will be your strength. 
it's only, your joy is only as good as Christ. If you're not seeking Christ, then he's the ultimate. He will give you that joy. Now, he tells a parable, Jesus does, in Matthew. He tells an interesting parable. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, what's this parable all about? Who's the treasure and who's the pearl of great price? Jesus. Jesus is the treasure. And what do these both men both do? When they found that treasure, what did they do? They left everything else behind and enjoy. They went and just pursued that one thing. Finding the treasure, finding the pearl, bought great joy. Nothing else compared. And what Jesus is saying is, I should be that source of joy and seeking and searching. Everything else pales in comparison to me. I am the pearl. I am the treasure. You should seek me. Psalm 73, 25 through 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Only a person who has the joy of the Lord as their strength can say that. That nothing on this earth compares, even in heaven, to what I have in Christ. So, Abide in prayer with Christ, seeking Christ. Abide in Christ's love and abide in Christ's word. Seek Christ and the joy will come. He'll give you that joy. Um, and it'll come deep in your heart because it's a deep-seated thing. It will be a deep-seated sense of contentment. And it doesn't matter what you're going through. Circumstances can be terrible. But it's a... It's a trust and a rest in his sovereignty, in his grace, and his power that, that he gives you deep in your heart that can't be taken away. A lot of things can be taken away from you, but Jesus says the joy can't be taken away. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So that's what I have tonight on joy. We have a, a few minutes left for questions. Do you guys have any questions tonight on joy? You know what the name of my youth group was back in the 80s? Our Wednesday night youth group was called Joy Explosion. <laughs> That's a great 80s name for a youth group. Joy Explosion. <laughs> we, yeah. we exploded with joy, I guess. Yes, Brent.
Right. 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 No, I think those are those are good examples of God's sovereignty and working all things out for good. I guess what I'm what I'm hearing you say is that sometimes in the midst of trials you don't necessarily feel it. Okay. When you're going through a difficult time, do you often like know what God's doing. No. You just go through it and you experience it and you're not sure what it is. Okay. Does joy come naturally? No, it wouldn't be a fruit of the Spirit if it came naturally. So what do you have to do when you go through those things? Pray. Abide in the Word. Abide in His love. Abide in prayer. Surround yourself with peoples that are speaking about the gospel. Try to avoid things that are going to make you bitter. Um, be a part of, a, of, a, of, a, of an environment that's going to speak joy into your life. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to. That doesn't mean that you're going to walk away being like, "Oh, I feel so much better." You could walk away in tears. But so here's the point: you can be tearful and deeply sorrowful and grieving, but still have joy because you know God's sovereign and you know God's there. Non-Christians can't do that. They can fake it. They'll cry. They'll grieve. They'll get mad. But they won't have joy. Because it's the fruit of the Spirit that only the Holy Spirit gives to believers. And there's been times where I've been at a person's deathbed or you've done a funeral or, you know, in all, all the years of ministry where very painful situations where you're like, this is not fun. But as you meet with the family or you, or you think about the Lord, you can walk away with joy knowing that God's sovereign, even though you may walk away with tears. Yeah. The joy of knowing that you're saved. Yeah, I've said this a couple of times over the years here. Um, they, they may take everything away. They could take away your health. They could take away your family. They could take away your riches. They could take away everything. But one thing that nobody can take away is your salvation. And so just the very fact that you have Christ, he's enough, you have eternal life, whatever you're going through in this world right now pales in comparison to eternity. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean it's not going to be painful. But you do know, like you said, Shauna, the whole story, that we're, we, have, we are secure in his grip. Nothing can separate us from his love. He loves us. He, we're secure. Nothing can separate us from his love. Any other questions? Mm-hmm. This is your grandson. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty insightful for a young man. <laughs> uh-huh. Mm-hmm. 
Well, grapevines back then, if you know anything about a grapevine. Anybody ever been around grapevines? Grapevines are like, the whole thing is a root. Like the whole thing is like, so like when you think of a, I am the vine, you're the branches, what do you, what, what do you picture in your mind, Shauna? Well, I picture a plant. Okay, like a plant. Okay. The whole system, yeah. So I can't go into a whole description, but go, go Google grapevines. <laughs> but anyway, the, the whole point is, is that we can't, Jesus is the support system to our life. He's the sap. He's the nourishment through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can do nothing without his source of spiritual nourishment. And so being the branches, when he's the vine, that, it's almost like saying he's the root too. Does that make sense? Because the vine and the root in a grapevine are almost the same thing. Yeah. It's not mixing metaphors. It's just ancient, art, ancient, ancient horticulture. <laughs> Any other questions? All right, I got a trivia question for you. Next week we're talking about peace. What's the difference between joy and peace? Don't answer it tonight because I have to figure it out. before. No, no. Some of these overlap. What's the difference between joy and peace? It's a, that's, a diff, that's an interesting one because they're very similar. But they're two different Greek words and they're, they're, they're separated. So we're going to talk about peace next week. All right? You guys ready to call it quits? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. And Lord, I just pray if there's anybody here tonight or maybe anybody watching on live stream that's going through a very difficult time, a struggle, a painful time, that, Lord, the joy of the Lord would be their strength. That, like Jehoshaphat, they may say, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to keep my eyes on you. And, Lord, your power is going to come through and, and get them through the difficult time. And, Lord, give them joy in that. Lord, help us to abide in prayer. Help us to abide in your love. Help us to abide in your word. And as we do that, Jesus, you give us your joy, and you give it to the full and no one can ever take that away from us. And so, Lord, help us to be joyful people in the midst of any circumstance we go through. Would you produce that joy deep in our hearts? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.